a woman running away with stolen cash, an isolated motel, a boy's best friend is his mother, all this can only mean one thing. We're comparing Psycho on this episode of Retro vs. Remake. Hi, this is Reggie Parker. And this is Dan Bulick. Welcome to another episode of Retro vs. Remake where we discuss films and their remakes. Today's episode, we're doing Psycho. So Psycho, the 1961, starring Anthony Perkins, Janet Leigh, Vera Miles, John Gavin, and Martin Balsam. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Screenplay by Joseph Stefano. Music by Bernard Herrmann. Psycho, 1998, starring Vince Vaughn, Anne Heche, Julianne Moore, Viggo Mortensen, and William H. Macy. Directed by Gus Van Zandt. Screenplay by Joseph Stefano again. Music by Danny Elfman and Steve Bartek, but they're adapting Herman's original score. It should be noted that the 1960 film is an adaptation of Robert Bloch's novel, also called Psycho, released in 1959, and the 1998 remake is based on the 1960 film. So, Reggie, what is your first experience with either film? My first experience with the 1960 film was actually in a film studies class. As you know, in Alfred Hitchcock is just a genius, one of the greatest directors to ever live. And we did a lot of uh, study of this particular film and the way it's shot. A lot of scenes that we're going to talk about, I was really paying attention to because I'd studied this before in a uh, classroom setting. So you should have some good insight that maybe I don't have. Yeah, what was your intro to it? I think I watched the original Psycho only once, and I think it was at a sleepover at my buddy's house when I was like 12 or so. I think we were doing like a horror movie thing. We were watching Psycho and Alien. I mean, I think I knew a lot about it because I just had seen it a lot in pop culture and everything. I mean, The Simpsons, I know, definitely did some Psycho homages. I kind of knew, I guess, everything before I even saw it. So the twist ending, I guess, wasn't too shocking to me because I had heard it somewhere. I guess it was just hard to avoid that sort of twist ending before actually watching the movie. So I had watched that, but I had never seen the remake until now. Same here. You know, when I heard that the remake was essentially an adaptation, almost shot for shot of the original, uh, the contrarian in me said, why do I need to watch this? So this is my first time checking it out. Yeah, I kind of felt the same way since it was an exact shot for shot remake with interesting casting. (laughs) I guess it just never occurred to me to need to watch the remake until this great podcast came along so we just get into the synopsis so we can do the comparisons so it's friday december 11th at 2 43 p.m we begin with a shot over phoenix arizona and are introduced to marion crane and sam loomis in a motel room post coitus marion says she's tired of the relationship being hidden and sam discusses all the debt he's in but he's open to taking it further marion then leaves for her job at a real estate company her boss walks in with a man who wants to pay for a new property with a lot of cash Marion's boss tells her to take the money to the bank right away. She agrees and is also allowed to go home afterwards. But Marion never goes to the bank. Instead, she takes the money and plans on going to Sam in California. After having some fantasies, a quick run with a cop, and buying a new car, Marion is back en route to California. The rain is very heavy, and then she decides to spend the night at the Bates Motel. We meet the owner, Norman Bates, who lives there with his mother. Occasionally, we hear Norman and his mother fight. Norman and Marion have dinner together where Norman discusses his mother a lot, and Marion ultimately decides she wants to go back to Phoenix and fix everything. They separate, and she takes a shower. While in the shower, Marion is brutally murdered by mother. Norman discovers what his mother did and tries to clean up her mess. 
He dumps Marion's body, car, possessions, and the cash she stole all in the swamp. The next day, we meet Marion's sister, Lila, as she goes to Sam's work looking for Marion. Arbogast, a private detective who's also looking for Marion, interrupts and says that he will find her. After searching many places, he arrives at the Bates Motel. He interrogates Norman and doesn't find his story convincing. He wants to speak with his mother, but Norman refuses. Arbogast calls Lila, tells her all the details, and wants to meet in less than an hour after he tries talking to Mother one more time. Arbogast then sneaks into the house to talk to Mother, but is viciously killed by her instead. Lila and Sam get restless waiting for Arbogast. Sam goes to the motel, but finds nothing. Then they go to the sheriff, where they learn that Norman's mother is dead. Sam and Lila then decide to go to the Bates Motel together. They think Norman took the money that Marion stole and possibly murdered her. After meeting Norman and searching her sister's old room, they split up. Lila goes to Mother's house, and Sam goes to talk to Norman. While talking to Sam, Norman gets frustrated, realizes Lila might be in his house, and knocks out Sam. Lila is unable to find any clues about her sister in the house, but hides in the cellar when she sees Norman coming back. In the cellar, Lila finds Mother. It turns out she's been dead the whole time. All that's left of her is her corpse. After Lila discovers this, Norman comes in dressed as Mother to attack her, but Sam stops him. At the courthouse, we learn that Norman has a split personality between himself and his mother, which he developed after killing her due to jealousy. We then see Norman in a room alone, thinking as mother. We see Marion's car being pulled out of a swamp, and the movie ends. This is an interesting one, because this is almost a shot-for-shot -shot remake. I was able to really go into details in the synopsis, because it's almost beat-for-beat beat the same movie. Absolutely. I think the best place to start is the one major difference that is identifiable and that is the original is a black and white film and the remake is in color so yeah that's the big glaring difference the color versus the black and white the 1960 film black and white is more of a limitation of the time that it's shot in black and white and then in the 1998 remake it's a personal choice by the director i think it actually serves gus van sant well here to differentiate himself from the original film, because once you start shooting it in black and white as well, I think it gets just way too close to the original, and it takes away from his own interpretation of this screenplay. So color, to differentiate the movies, I think works. You know, whether or not I think the color fits the uh, the tone of the film, uh, not so much. I don't know. What's your take on that? Well, the 1960 version was in black and white due to cost, mostly. And also because, I guess back then, if you showed blood and stuff, it would be, I don't know, it would look too gory, I guess, for a 1960s audience. So having the blood in black and white just makes it less gory. And uh, the decision to make it in color, I guess I could see just to make it different. To sh I don't know if it did help the movie. Um, I was really, I don't know why, I was really focused on Anne Heche's character. Um, she played Marion Crane in the remake. Like, all her outfits were, like, the, the brightest, weirdest bright colors, almost, like, neon bright. And I was just, like, I didn't understand why her, her awful taste in her clothes. But if that was done, just, just, look, look how much the color really pops in this movie. I didn't understand the decision to have her wear these weird colors. So it's, it sort of distracted me. Yeah, I agree. You know, Anne Heche is wearing these, like, lime greens. And, uh, I don't know, I'm almost getting, like, a 70s housewife kind of vibe from uh, her outfits and the colors that are used. Like, it's filmed in 1998, but it feels like they're trying to draw on a different period, almost, with the outfit choices, not necessarily with the filming itself. I don't know. There's some there's some strange things going on in this film, and I don't know if they're trying to kind of relate back to the time in which the original was filmed, 
while still making it modern or I don't know. I would probably have to read some interviews and figure out what Gus's decision making was there. It's slightly distracting. I will say that. Yeah, it did seem like most of the people were wearing these like old, definitely not 1998 style clothing. The only person who seemed to actually whose clothing was like, oh, that's normal clothes was Julianne Moore's character when she finally shows up and she's got the headphones on. It's like, oh, OK, you kind of are dressed normal. You're not wearing these. Yeah, I guess 70s is what definitely comes to mind, the weird style that everybody else is wearing. Not to jump ahead too much, but even Vince Vaughn's Norman Bates, I know his style is definitely not current. So I guess, like I said, one of the reasons it was in black and white, the original, was for the blood. So I guess you could see more blood in the the remake. It's it's a catch-22. He, ha- he has to do it. In my opinion, I think he has to make it a film in color. Otherwise, it's just way too redundant. But at the same time, because of the original source material, the color actually distracts. It's a decision that I think you need to make, but unfortunately, because you need to make the decision, you're already behind in terms of the audience. Like I'm already kind of not feeling it because you added this kind of quirky color to, uh, for the time, a serious film. Yeah, I could see if he did make it in black and white that the comparison would be just a lot, a little bit harsher. He's trying to do exactly like Hitchcock. I think the decision making color, especially in 1998, definitely makes sense. But it's so it's okay. It's I'll if I had to give it a positive or negative, I'd give it a slight positive, I guess, because I, I won't be judging it as harshly. I agree. I, I'll give it a slight positive just because it makes me feel like this is a modern film. That that's kind of where it stops because it has to be a modern film. Otherwise, you're just doing Psycho all over again and you know when you have a great masterpiece like that people really don't want you just doing shot for shots remake unless you're bringing something to the table so maybe we can go from there into discussing how the original obviously takes place in 1960 and the remake does go a little bit off the track by making it in 1998 what do you think about that decision i think it does matter you know when i'm watching the original 1960 film the context of the time is very apparent. Like the opening sequence, one, I will say just from a, a movie nerd perspective, when Hitchcock takes that camera from the uh, you know landscape shots, he's showing you a cityscape and then zooms right into the story. I got nothing but positive things to say about what a cool way to start a movie. Yeah, I rewound it at that point. I was like, did he really just go from outside <laughs> over the city into the hotel? I thought that was really cool how he did that, yeah. Yeah, you know, from uh, from my time, you know, it's not like I'm I don't create films. I don't direct things like I've, I've dabbled in some some screenplay stuff, but um, I'm really not a huge, huge movie buff. But that type of stuff, one of the things I've learned from film study was to think about where the camera is. And that scene really makes me think like, damn, how do you get that shot? You know, do you get a crane out? Is he like zooming in like? Without getting too distracted from the movie, I was like, what a really cool shot. And it was worth whatever it took for him to actually to get it. 1998, it's a little bit easier to get that shot. So the effect is a little bit lost. But I love that they just come right into the story because it makes you feel like there's an immediacy to what's going on. As opposed to, you know, like some movies, you don't really have that connection early on. That opening scene is so much more powerful in the 1960s because their relationship is actually more taboo and forbidden. You know, in 1998, you know, dating around, not really that big of a deal. But in 1960, you know, she's supposed to be a respectable woman. 
she's like leaving her job to engage in this tryst with uh, the Sam Loomis character. And a lot of the tension in that first scene is the fact that, hey, I'm not your wife. You have to keep with the times and the good girl um, persona of the time. And this is completely against it. So their relationship is a lot more lurid, I guess, uh, given the context. And it, it actually makes the opening, to me, better because there's actually some stakes in their relationship. I don't know, what's, uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, I didn't even really think about that. But yeah, it's not so scandalous in 1998 for her to be in this motel. You can hear more people having sex through the walls in the remake. But yeah, it's definitely it's just more impressive in the original, the whole setup and everything. And Yeah, it makes sense. I just personally feel that the stakes early on are higher. You've got this guy with an ex-wife, which at the time, you know, I don't think a lot of people were getting divorced. And if they were not really in a public manner, he's paying alimony, he's got debt, and he's he's got this relationship with Marion. And she ultimately wants to be a respectable woman. She wants him to go on dates. And there's a lot of stakes for her to not have that. If it's found out that they're in a relationship and she's unmarried and he has an ex-wife, that has a huge uh, potential to undermine her standing in um, you know, her community. The tryst is a little more weighty in your first film. Whereas like, you know, 1998, okay, you're dating around. All right, <laughs> who isn't? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the big differences, I guess, to the time setting. The other one would just be, I guess, the money. In the original, she steals 40000 In the remake, it's brought up to 400000 So the money's a little bit different. Yeah, in, in the way she gets the money, I think Gus Van Zandt, um, this is where you start sort of seeing these modern differences. I think when the uh, the big kind of like Southern tycoon character that's buying the property comes in, he's so over the top in the original film. Like the level of sexual harassment that's happening is insane in the first movie. And it, it's dialed back a little bit for 1998 because at that time you got more of a lawsuit on your hands <laughs> if uh, you've got a guy coming in treating women the way you see in the 1960 film. It's still a little creepy in the 1998 one. <laughs> It's definitely still creepy. It's creepy, but they scale it back enough that it's like it's it's apparent that he's a creep in both films. But um, in the original film, I think you could be so much more openly a creep that the two performances are, are uh, different. The money difference definitely helps because for a modern audience, if you would have said forty thousand dollars, I don't think you skip town and you know <laughs> restart your life. <laughs> yeah, not not for forty thousand. So smart choice to make it four hundred thousand dollars because then you've really seen why um, she needs to skip town. Yeah, it's not just a slap on the wrist for four hundred thousand as opposed to maybe forty thousand. For you, did you feel that Sam's need for the money felt the same in the new film? Like he had debt, but he didn't harp on it as much as I felt it seemed like in the the original film. Yeah, it didn't seem to bother him that much in the remake. He seemed more for the relationship in the remake than in the original because he's a little more apprehensive in the <clears throat> original because he's got all that debt with his alimony and whatever his father owed. Yeah, it didn't really seem like there was a huge need for the money. I understand when someone hands you $400,000, the temptation to, to take that. Again, I really felt that uh, when you're talking about casting in the time period, that time period actually gives a lot more weight to some of the action that's happening. So early on, I completely understand Marion's desire to steal this money. Whereas in the new film, all right, yeah, you know, I guess she wants $400,000 and it can help with her relationship, but it didn't, the stakes did not seem nearly as, nearly as high to me. 
Do you have any more about the uh, 1998 versus 1960? It definitely helps with the money. 40000 versus 400000 definitely helps there. But I don't know how much setting the remake in 1998 helps the remake. I think maybe you make it in 1998. That way you don't have to make all the clothes and sure. cars and everything. 1960s authentic. So it's a little easier there. But I can't think of any reason that it had to be in 1998. Except that she had a Walkman, Lila, in the remake. That's the only technology that wasn't available in 1960. Other than that, I don't know that it had to be in 1998. Yeah, I don't know if it had to be in 1998 either. And um, from the perspective of disappearing, you know, or, you know, trying to start this new life, it's so much harder to do in 1998. Like, there's just so much more technology. You know, we're not really at the cell phone era, per se, it's not like everybody in 98 was running around for cell phone. This predates the iPhone. So, you know, it makes sense that, you know, that technology isn't prominently featured. But the police would have a much easier time of tracking her than you would have in 1960. You know, I, I could believe that the cop had no idea that this money had been stolen yet, you know, or, or once they did realize that the money was stolen, you know, between television, the newspapers, things like that, the manhunt would have been a lot more thorough for that woman. And I don't think that necessarily gets featured in this film. So I think the period of 1998 hurts the screenplay because there's just so much more available resources for the people looking for her. Yeah, and just kind of going into more resources with the police and everything. I'm thinking of Marion's murder now. Norman being able to clean up all the blood and everything might be a little easier in 1960 because maybe the forensics isn't there yet. And then you go in 1998 and you commit the same murder and you'd have the same kind of sloppy cleanup, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're going to be found out. There's no way you're going to be hidden. They got all sorts of technology to find out if you murdered somebody in a hotel room with where blood gets everywhere, especially. Yeah. So, I, yeah, that could definitely hurt it. Yeah, I think so. And in this case, just legally, it's so much different in 1960. Like, I understand the guy realizing that, oh, my God, this woman's missing. And the connection between local police authorities across state lines, probably a lot harder to get cooperation like that. So going from Arizona to California, you really don't have that same limitation in the 1990s. So hiring a private investigator solely to find this person instead of really getting the police involved makes a lot more sense in 1960 because ultimately the guy, he's really, I mean, he's looking for his money, but he's looking for revenge. Whereas um, in 1998, I think more so he'd be looking for close to half a million dollars and you would definitely get the cops involved and not just some random gumshoe. Like it doesn't, doesn't really hold up in 1998 because if someone had $400,000, you would definitely get not only the police, but probably the FBI involved in that case. Like what's his name? Uh, John, Joe Walsh would be. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be on TV trying to find your money for you. <laughs> yeah, man. I don't know. It's like, it's that little stuff like that where I know you didn't change much, but the little bit that you had to change actually makes a huge difference. Because you've now set the framework that this is 1998, I'm starting to play by 1998 rules. And some, like you said, the forensics, all this stuff starts falling apart. Yeah, that's true. It's 1998, 1998 rules. What worked in 1960, stealing and committing murder is not going to play well in 1998. You should have something different to meet 1998 standards when it comes to that. So if you're doing the exact same thing, which we are here, it's definitely going to hurt. Yeah, I mean, you know, staying a little bit on the that side of things, the technology in the period, 
even the scene where you're trading your car, you know, it's not like, oh, I traded my car and now there's not really a good source back to me, you know, like the paperwork involved, the registration involved. It wouldn't just be, oh, yeah, she switched cars and now uh, we're off the... <laughs> <laughs> now, we, now we can't find her. Where'd she go? I don't know. She did the one thing we couldn't follow, switching cars. <laughs> yeah, you know, to an extent, it would actually make her more vulnerable to authorities because there's been this transaction. She used her license and registration to buy the new car. Yeah. If they went through the steps of getting the police involved, it's 1998. There would be all kinds of TV stuff. You know, this was around the time, like, uh, for instance, like the OJ stuff. Like, we all watched that on television. So this is the TV era. If a woman stole $400,000 and went on a lamb, the country would be watching it. You know, a guy that sold her a used car would say, huh, that's that woman. And would, you know, probably talk to the cops and you'd probably be able to quickly nail down where she was. Yeah, that whole car dealership thing doesn't work in the remake because you're leaving a huge paper trail. Now it's going to be easier to find you, I feel. It definitely makes her look more guilty. Correct. Because now she's doing something to try to get you off her trail, but horrible way of doing it because it's going to be easier to find you because now we have all your information here and we know when you did this. But yeah, the car dealership scene makes less sense in the remake because it would be easier for them to find her. It doesn't throw them off her trail at all. No, it's just creating more of a trail. You know, and, and that's the thing. You, you've got this great script, and you've got this great moment in time where Alfred Hitchcock puts out this wild thriller that people, you know, I don't think people were used to that type of twist ending. I don't think people were used to that level of a gory film, more or less, you know, that shower scene and things like that. Now we're, we're used to sensational violence. So you, you can't really recapture that energy. So, you know, I, I understand the the desire to make it more modern, but then it just creates this, this loop where guys like me and you will look at it and say, well, wait a minute, this doesn't really hold up in this time frame the same way it did in 1960. So definitely overall, putting it in 1998 hurts the remake. It's definitely a negative against it. For sure. For sure. And, and you know, the, the thing about it too is I think they would have done better for themselves to not say it was 1998. Just let the audience think whatever date is. Like in the original film, it's Friday, December 11th, 2.43 p.m. in Phoenix, Arizona. That's it. You know, they don't say 1960. They just say December 11th. I think the remake should have done the same thing. I, I love that he wants to source it and, and make it more modern. But if he would have just said December 11th, the same way they did in the first film, and not really given it a date, we could have implied that it was 1998. But now that we definitively know that's when this is supposed to be, it's actually taking me out of the movie. I could see why he did that, though, because if you don't put the date in there, you could be questioning it the whole time. Like, is this present day or is this supposed to be in the 60s like the original? So it takes away that. So you're not distracted by thinking that the whole movie until you see Julianne Moore's Walkman until <laughs> that's the only thing that would tell you that it was 1998. I could see why he did it. If you're going to make it in 1998, though, you can't keep it the same. You have to make some changes. So keeping it the same. Sorry. Not a good idea. Yeah. I guess we, we've ultimately <laughs> come to the, this conclusion that, you know, making 1998 makes things problematic for the script. I guess really the only other defining differences is the actors themselves. So maybe we uh, maybe want to dive into that side of the film. You want to start with the, the lead, which would be our Norman Bates character, Anthony Perkins in the original versus Vince Vaughn in the remake. Yes. Oh, Money, right. baby. Money. <laughs> Hot off of swingers. What should I do? <laughs> Psycho. I guess it would be after uh, Jurassic Park, right? Oh, my God. You're right. Was that Jurassic World? 
I don't remember. <laughs> There's so many Jurassic Parks now. Or maybe the Lost World. I don't think anyone remembers the Vince Vaughn. <laughs> Vince Vaughn and Julianne Moore, though. <laughs> Reunited. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> True. Hey, that, that's a great combo, apparently. Um, so Anthony Perkins versus Vince Vaughn. You want to kick it off? I'll kick it off. Anthony Perkins is phenomenal. He's got this gangly build. He's so awkward. The way he, the way he's interacting with uh, Janet Lee, he he seems, you know, goofy and almost harmless. But there's this darkness to him, and in a in a very short amount of time, he gives you this sort of just weird vibe. I just love his take on it. Really, the main thing for me is just how awkward he feels throughout all of these scenes, and and he does it so adeptly that. Really, that, that's the main thing that I wanted to say about Anthony Perkins, just to start off our conversation. I mean, I can just get into a comparison. Sure. So it's kind of the same problem, I guess. The 1998 time versus 1960. We're pretty much following the exact same script. So Anthony Perkins playing this kind of really good boy with really good manners, who's definitely got some darkness that you can sense coming from him. That makes sense in 1960s that he's like got this kind of weird happy go lucky i'm a good boy kind of attitude because maybe that's the 60s maybe that's how people sort of behaved back then and then when vince vaughn's doing it in 1998 it doesn't come across as maybe he's a nice guy it comes across right. as just creepy i got more of a creepy vibe from vince vaughn's character sure. than the anthony perkins and i don't think that's what you're supposed to feel about norman bates i think you're supposed to kind of root for him and you're just like oh this poor nice guy but the way he's played by vince vaughn and it's not all vince vaughn's performance i mean some of it is but um you know the fact that he has to say the exact same words that somebody in 1960 is saying it doesn't work in 1998 acting like that yeah it definitely doesn't work for me yeah i, I see what you mean by the idea of uh when you're first introduced to Norman, and Marion sort of alludes to this in in the script, it's just it's more like, oh man, you should like you should get out, like you shouldn't just be tied down to your your mother. And and in the 1960s, like you said, that good boy attitude of just, hey, I can't leave my mom alone. Um, yes, it stunted my development and my social growth, but he has this obligation that fits that time period a little bit more. And you're right, when I'm watching Anthony Perkins take i'm not immediately at the point where i think this guy is just out to lunch you know he's he's an odd duck you know he's a weird guy but i'm not necessarily getting that complete creep vibe initially like he seems adjusted enough for the time whereas vince vaughn you're right saying the same words in the 1998 setting immediately creepy <laughs> like Im immediately strange i kind of like the casting choice for vince vaughn in the sense of um his body, you know, he's a taller guy. He, he does, like, the gangly thing well. So I can see the parallels between the original Norman and that Norman. Vince really does do a good job of having this kind of, like, aloof, you know, out-to-lunch facial expression. But, like, some of the choices they make throw him completely into, like, the creep zone, like you mentioned. And it's much harder to initially root for him because from the jump, you're like, all right, this guy's this guy's weird. Having him talk like he's from the 60s in 1998 definitely just is, is the wrong way to go. And especially because you got Vince Vaughn, like we were talking about, he's kind of fresh off swingers. I think it's a really big missed opportunity to just have him be Vince Vaughn. Because in the original, you know, Norman Bates, he's this really nice, good boy attitude. So you're rooting for him. And then I think you got Vince Vaughn in the 
remake, just make him charming. Make him charming as hell. Oh, he can't be the murderer, right? Because I like him. They should have made you like Norman a little bit more in the remake. Nothing they really did <laughs> makes you like him. You definitely like the Anthony Perkins character because his attitude fits the time period. Vince Vaughn's attitude doesn't. <laughs> so there's something wrong with this guy. You know it immediately. You're not rooting for him. You should have just let Vince Vaughn be Vince Vaughn. Have him be charming, not weird. Maybe more flirtatious with the Marion character. Yeah, just let him be himself. That way the audience is falsely or wrongly rooting for him. Yeah, I think so, because in the original, you, you could almost see, like, hey, you know what, wouldn't it be kind of cool if these two made a connection? Like, it seemed like Norman needed that type of uh, human interaction in his life, so you, you weren't as immediately dismissive of him. You know, they're not really flirting, per se, but, like, there is clearly, like, this attraction that Norman has to Marion in an almost, like, innocent, childlike way in the original film. Whereas, you know, it doesn't play like that in 1998. And it's like you said, it's just immediately like, yeah, how do you flirt with her? Or like, because Vince Vaughn does that so well. He does that. I'm a charming, you know, charismatic guy. He does that so well that to make him one of the most charismatic characters in the history of film, it's like, all right, so why did you get Vince Vaughn for this? <laughs> there wasn't another tall, like, dude that could play a creep. <laughs> And then it's like, why would she have dinner with him in the remake? You immediately see he's creepy. And it's like, no, I don't want to have dinner with you. I don't care that you're alone. <laughs> I'm going to just go on the internet. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. But then, like, in 1960s, yeah, it makes sense that he's, he doesn't seem out of place. He seems so out of place in 1998. Yeah. So it makes sense for her to, oh, yeah, I'll hang out with you and have dinner in the original, as opposed to the remake, where it's like, I don't want to have dinner with this creep. Yeah. He's creepy. You see him, right? <laughs> he's creepy. Especially, like, in that more modern film. It's like, Milk and sandwiches? Like, dude, no, nah, I'm, <laughs> I'm good on the milk and sandwich. I mean, just something as simple as, like, giving him a little bit of edge. Like, a Vince Vaughn character you would expect to be like, hey, let's go have a martini and, uh, you know, or, like, let's let's do wine and cheese, you know? Like, I'm bored, you're bored. Like, that would have played, you're right, that would have played really, really well here and not completely gone off script. But, like... <laughs> This gangly tall dude wants to do milk and sandwiches in the night? Yeah, nah, nah, you're right. There, there's no way. Yeah, this creepy Mr. Rogers vibe you get from him. It definitely doesn't play well. I like Vince Vaughn, but this is not one of his good roles. Nah. You know, um, <laughs> we'll have plenty to say about the Bates character. I guess your other major driving force for the early parts of the film, at least, you've got Janet Lee in the original film, and you've got Anne Heche. Like, what is your take on the different Marions? I didn't mind Anne Heche's Marion, actually. I know that might seem weird, but I don't know. It didn't seem so out of place as the Vince Vaughn character did. Her line delivery seemed fine to me. It felt more natural. Definitely felt more natural, what she was saying, than what every time Vince Vaughn had said anything. So I didn't mind her. I thought she did okay. Yeah. Overall, nothing too bad. Yeah, and I like Janet Lee. Obviously, she did really well in the original. Yeah, it wasn't like, ugh, Anne Heche is terrible. I thought she was okay. Yeah, I think she did a good job. You know, it's obviously hard to stack up against Janet Lee's portrayal in the original film. But, uh, you know, that quirky played well in the 90s for um, a lot of female characters. Um, I don't know if this is exactly around the same time frame, but uh, I don't know if you remember the film, like, True Romance. Like, that uh, sort of offbeat girl persona played pretty well in, in that time period. So, like, Anne Heche... It's like there's something a little quirky about her, but she's still normal enough. You're right. Like she fits in throughout the film. So I didn't ever feel like she was out of place. I think her portrayal is, like you said, perfectly fine. 
There's nothing wrong with it. For me, I do still prefer Janet Lee's Marion, but I think it's because Janet Lee's Marion has more to work with. Again, that time period being a big aspect of it, like this this sort of independent woman vibe in the 1960s is just a much more powerful force than it is in the 1990s. It's like there's a lot of quirky independent women in 1990s films. So Anne Hitch does a great job, but it's not unexpected in that time period. Right. It definitely has more of an impact in the 1960s. Just going back to like you were saying how it was even taboo for her to be in a hotel room. The Marion Crane character is just a little more of a strong independent woman, I, I suppose, than in the remake where that's kind of, yeah, it's 1998. I could see you doing that. But if she's doing this stuff in the 60s, it's definitely just more impactful doing all those actions in the 60s as opposed to 1998. But overall, I was fine with Anne Heche's portrayal. I think she has some very strong moments. And I will say that even though the weight of the scene isn't the same, like contextually, that opening scene, her interpretation of those lines actually fit in the time period. Like there's having the same dialogue, of course, because it is, in fact, the same dialogue. But um, like she's less focused on the fact that she's unmarried and more focused on the fact that like, hey, if you want to have a serious relationship, we, this should be a serious relationship. And I think that's the way you play that scene in the 90s. Early on in the film, she was giving me the sense that, OK, although this is the same dialogue, this remake is going to bring something to the table. It's almost like uh, in the 90s, they were remaking every damn Shakespeare play into a, oh, yeah. <laughs> into a, you know, for a modern audience. And like, I think she took that source material and made it her own. I mean, that, that's a sign of a great actress. I just pr- still prefer Janet Lee's, but I think Janet had more to work with. Yeah. Yeah. I was able to buy Anne Heche saying lines that were written for a 1960 film in 1998. Mm-hmm. Again, like much more than I was able Vince Vaughn's lines. Sure. I think she did fine. I will say, uh, because we are talking about that opening scene and we are talking about Anne Heche, the remake does give you more nudity. It does. A little bit. You get uh, you get some ass you, shot there. You get some Vigo Mortensen ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess we could talk about Sam. So we have Vigo Mortensen playing him in the remake and John Gavin playing him in the original. Mm-hmm. So And as we said, yeah, you get man ass, Vigo Mortensen, yeah. Argon's ass. <laughs> <laughs> the Sam character... To me, Vigo's feels a little more like down home and all like shucksy to an extent where the Sam in the original film to me kind of felt more like a mover and a shaker because in the context of the time, again, speaking on the period, he's like flying out to meet this woman and, you know, sort of expensiveness. So he does have debt, but he's got enough going on. He didn't give me the vibe of just like, I'm along for the ride. He seemed to be completely in control. For me, Vigo just felt a little more like laid back and nonchalant about everything. And he gave me almost a Southern vibe. Oh, he definitely had like a Southern accent. Yeah, yeah. I think it makes sense, though, to give him that Southern accent. Because, again, he's got the dialogue from the 60s, right? Mm -hmm. So he has to deliver the lines and they might not work if he's talking, I guess, with a not Southern accent or our accents. Right. You know, our prejudices, like the Southern, they're just a little bit slower than we are. So they could still be talking like they live in the 60s, right? As opposed to living in 1998. So having his character be Southern, it works having the 1960s dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Early on in the film, it's just more convincing to me the way Anne Heche and Vigo take on those roles. No, Sam, you know, he's a character. He moves things along, but he's hardly like a very interesting character in either film. I mean, he, you know, he's got his dad, he's got the ex-wife, but they're not really in the film that much besides the opening sequence. But uh, I think you were starting to kind of allude to uh, the Lila character, which we can definitely talk about. 
Yeah, so she's played by Vera Miles in the original and Julianne Moore in the remake. Julianne Moore, a stronger female character, the Lila in the remake than in the original. She's kind of more of a go-getter. She just seemed more intense in the remake than in the original. Yeah, I agree. I feel like um, in the original, you know, she wants to find her sister and she does go to see Sam and helps drive action in that way. But in the remake, it definitely feels like she's going to crack this case. I mean, she may not be a private detective, but she's not just going to sit back on her heels and wait for the men to figure it out. Like she's going to go and do things herself. So she's a much stronger character, even with the same dialogue in the new film. I think it does come back to the point that Vigo's Sam is not necessarily this hyper-masculine character. The Vigo Sam is a little more subdued, and it gives her character a lot of space to push for the action. And like you said, it makes her a strong female character. Yeah, that's a good point. He's got this laid-back Southern vibe. Not really gung-ho about doing everything, but he'll do it. But yeah, it lets her character be a little bit stronger. And, you know... it. It kind of goes back to also like what she's wearing, right? In the original, I think the Lila character is just wearing dresses all the time, which is normal in the 60s. And then in the new one, she's like, she almost looks like she just came from backpacking or something, right? So this, we know that this is a woman who gets things done. Right. Even her interactions when Aragas first shows up, there isn't that sense of, oh, like, uh, are we in trouble type of thing? She's like, no, I'm looking for my sisters. Uh, you know, it's the same dialogue, but like the delivery is different. She's like, I don't give a damn whether you believe me or not, because at the end of the day, I'm looking for Marion. And she plays it so well. It's really interesting to see an actor being able to take the exact same material and sort of flip it in a way that now this character has taken on its own life. Where for me, I would say the stronger character in those scenes in the uh, the original was the private detective, like the Aragas character is sort of more or less bullied those guys around early on, and Lila fights back a lot more in the remake and has her own agency. I agree wholeheartedly, just being able to take those same lines and just give them a little bit more. And you could go on to that Arbogast character. Yeah. Yeah, we got Martin Balsam playing him in the original and William H. Macy playing him in the remake. I love both takes. The Arbogast in 1960s one, he's just such a hard ass, you know? He almost gives me like that Columbo vibe. Like, oh yeah, one more thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great character because he comes out of nowhere and immediately is like, I know what's going on. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And when you see William H. Macy doing it, you're getting a similar vibe of like, okay, here's a private detective. But Macy, he's such a great character actor that it's not the same energy. He's a lot more subdued than the original Arbogast, who just, it's kind of like a hard-nosed, take-no-prisoners dude that just, He's going to figure it out, man, whatever it takes. Whereas William H. Macy gives me more of the vibe of like, okay, let me see what's going on and figure things out. And uh, I'll build a case before I really start pressing people. Both characters are doing effectively the same thing of giving us more information about the backstory of Norman Bates and and how this kind of craziness came about. But uh, two different ways to do it. I like the original actor's performance a little bit more. I don't know, I guess William H. Macy, because, you know, he's... He always plays kind of, I guess, from the movies I've seen, he's kind of like the nicer guy. So I guess he doesn't have the the edge that the original Arbogast has. And I don't know, I just got distracted by his clothes. Again, sure. he looks like, like you said, he's wearing these, the gumshoe thing. He's got the whole setup. He's even got that, that hat, man. And his clothes are too big for him, too. I noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> they don't fit him. I don't know what that was, if that was just for comedic effect. Or, they, they or, but it distracted me. 
I don't know. Every time William H Macy was on the screen, I just laughing because like, he looked so ridiculous. I guess that could have been a decision. Let's make this Marvel guest character a little, a little funny that he thinks he's like hot shit, but he can't even wear clothes that fit. I don't know. Well, I think tonally that comes into play because if you see some of the uh, the scenes, like the shower scene where Marion gets killed by mother, the way it's played in the remake is uh to me it feels like camp. Oh, isn't it kind of funny the way they had to shoot this scene in the 60s? Let's shoot it in a similar wacky way. And, you know, that that to me feels like maybe there are moments in the films where they're going for like these like direct allusions to the original film, but in a sort of a campy, cheesy way. And William H. Macy seems to completely embody that. He's playing the character of a private detective from the 1960s, but he's in 1998. You're right. It's strange. But uh, I, I agree with you that the Arbogast in the original film, to me, is, uh, is a stronger portrayal because that Arbogast felt like he was the end game in that movie. You know, before he gets murdered, to me, it felt like, oh, damn, this dude's about to, like, go mess some shit up. Like, this guy means business. Whereas William H. Macy felt more like, you know, he was kind of poking around and trying to get to the bottom of things, but not necessarily like he was going to be the one to sort of wrap up this case. Felt like he was going to get more involved with Viggo Mortensen and uh, Julianne Moore characters and maybe use them to sort of wrap this up. Whereas the original Arbogast, to me, felt like, okay, I, I got it. I know what's going on and I'm going to bust this guy. Yeah, I definitely got that sense that there's a little more confidence in the original Arbogast. He felt like he was definitely going to get it done. William H. Macy, not so much. Also, because just going back again to it worked in 1960, this doesn't work in 1998. You know, when he's talking to Norman Bates in the original, Norman's lying to him and then Arbogast is kind of buying it, I guess, in 1960. Mm-hmm. But you do the same thing in 1998 with Vince Vaughn and William H. Macy. Oh, yeah, I didn't remember her. Oh, yeah, she was here. I don't know. Hasn't police investigation gotten better where he should be like, oh, he's obviously lying. I need to investigate. But he kind of buys it. Right. And it works in 1960 because it's 1960. So, oh, yeah, he can buy that. But come on, police investigation had to have improved since then. And he, he wouldn't buy it. It weakens, uh, I guess, his character in the remake because he's not that good of a detective and he should be. Again, fundamentally, because it's 1998, the character is undermined by the fact that why is he acting alone in this capacity? Like, I understand that the rich guy wanted to hire a private detective, but why would you rely solely on a private detective to get you back $400,000? Especially when you're really thinking about that, how much are you paying this private detective? Because, like, what happens if he finds the money? What happens if he finds the girl? Is he, like, loyal to you? Like, there, there needs to be some sort of reasoning why this dude whose clothes don't fit <laughs> isn't just going to, like, find $400,000 and be like, well, never figure that one out and just lives off of that for the rest of his life. <laughs> I don't know where it is. Oh, well, just pay me and I'm going to just buy an island for no reason. <laughs> it's just It's just weird that the police aren't as involved. Also, when you're talking about the location that they're in, like what part of California is this like Hixie, Baxwood, like sheriff in? Like it just, it doesn't fit anymore. Like you're not, you're not going to be coming off like the 405 and like, I uh, just stumbled upon Bates Motel and you know, wow, the, that guy's mother's been killed for 10 years now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where everybody knows each other. Yeah, it's not believable in 1998. <laughs> Nobody talks to each other in 1998. <laughs> You wouldn't know that. I like just had a moment with us talking right now that I went back and I'm like, no, you know what? I'm not buying this premise in this time. I like kind of suspended disbelief while I was watching it. But now as we're talking about the private detective portion, 
it's really taking me out of the new film. Yeah, it doesn't work. And like you said, you almost don't need him because you would just use the police. You wouldn't have this, hey, I'm a gumshoe. <laughs> it's killing me. His clothes don't fit. Why don't his clothes fit? <laughs> <laughs> he just looks like he's been like drinking at a local dive bar for like days. And he's like, ah, oh, let me stumble out. I got a new case. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh man, that, that rich millionaire I worked for was flashing half a million dollars to get in cash. And I got to go. <laughs> I don't know. It just yeah, it definitely didn't work for me. <laughs> You know what? At that point, you're a dick, dude. Like $400,000 you're just walking around with. You know what? You deserve to lose that. Like this is completely on him in the new film. Yeah, I don't know what he's doing walking around with 400000 like that. Like, you know, walking around with a lot of money in the 60s is still kind of crazy, but it makes sense. There's less sophisticated banking and, you know... I could buy a guy who's like on like a three-day bender, who's drinking booze and a womanizer, carrying around a big stack like that. But in, in this new film, it's like, dude, just break out the MasterCard, dude. What the <laughs> fuck are you doing? I mean, if you did get the police involved, like, so wait, so you were walking around with half a million dollars. It was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> my walking money. Uh, man, not to get not to get too distracted, but um, the death scene for uh, Arbogast. I noticed that you had made a note about that because there is a slight sort of difference there. There's a couple differences, yeah. You want to talk about the edits? <laughs> yeah, the edits. You know, the first film, the kind of like fast walking down the stairs. Yeah, it definitely isn't believable today. <laughs> yeah, he's just like waving his hands, like oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's pretty laughable by today's standards. Yes, it, it is. So surely they did it better in the remake, right? No, <laughs> not at all. Actually, I read that William H Macy was hoping that they would shoot it better because it did look so fake. And then, to his dismay, he had to shoot it the exact same way. Poor William H Macy. You know, unfortunately, because of modern filming, you wouldn't take an actor like that and like risk his uh, personal well-being. Like the way they shoot it, like is he on a wire? Like what is what's happening there? I think he just has a projection screen behind him. Right? It's just the camera falling down the stairs, and then he's just yeah, in front right? of the screen waving his arms. Yeah, like a dope. Right, right. I think that's how they shoot that. I think so. And now this new film, kind of inexplicably, there's like these weird cuts and edits. Like, are they trying to make a statement about the human psyche or something? Like, that's the closest thing I could think of. Like, is this what Norman's thinking at the time that he's doing these murders? It didn't make sense, and it felt like a Nine Inch Nails video because that naked woman <laughs> was also closer. Yes. I feel. Yeah, just like the smash cut to like the cane like <laughs> skull on the yeah. side of the Route 66, and then a flash like a woman. Like, I'm not saying that's specifically what's happening, but like that's what it feels like. These moments are so strange. It was bizarre. It was it was a shocker. Right. I mean, it wasn't the first time he did a weird cut like that, but we'll, we'll get to that. But it definitely comes out of nowhere. All of a sudden, okay, naked woman with a mask. Okay, that's a calf in the middle of a road. What? What? <laughs> Why? Why are these images? Yeah. There was nothing to prepare you for this. And then all of a sudden, it just gets artsy. <laughs> yeah, right. It gets like artsy in weird moments that actually kind of hurt it. <laughs> Yeah, because you're going to be left there scratching your head going, what? <laughs> like I am right now. I don't understand why those were there. Those specific images, I suppose. If you do it kind of throughout the film, like there's these like weird sort of cuts and things that are kind of supposed to represent a psychological break. I know you mentioned that they uh, they appear earlier in the film. Was there any like the Marion scenes? I'm trying to re recall. The shower scene is when there's another weird cut out of nowhere. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's when it starts happening. 
I would actually kind of like go with it if you actually use it. Like when Marion is running away with the money and she's having a tough time with being on the lam. If you maybe like sprinkle some of that stuff in to allude that like other people are struggling with their own psyche, maybe I'll, I'll play ball with you on this. But like these random moments, it doesn't fit because at this point you don't know who the murderer is. So like, why? You know, like why are these cuts? What are they alluding to? Yeah. And I guess once you know the secret, quote unquote, I guess it makes more sense. But it's still like it doesn't hold up, man. It doesn't make sense. If we want to compare what happens when Marion gets stabbed, there's some shots of storm clouds, two quick cuts of that during her murder, and then during the murder of Barbara Gast, you see the naked woman and the calf. I don't understand. Is there a connection between that? I mean, he could have used at least the same images, maybe, but yeah, if maybe if he had done it earlier, instead of maybe doing just the voiceovers with Marion in the car, maybe if some of those images came too. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe that would help that, oh, this is a thing that happens when people start thinking. I don't know. It didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand what those images were supposed to convey. I guess weird things happen when the murders happen. I didn't understand it fully. I guess so. You know, it's almost like you have to draw your own conclusions. Like you you need other reference points to that type of uh, imagery in films to even start to make conclusions, in my opinion. And maybe, maybe we're missing some greater artistic vision here, but... The choices that are made in the 1960 film, like you were saying, voiceover. The voiceover in that film works so well. There's action that they don't need to show you. I love it. I love when you don't need to unnecessarily go back to another character or like film a scene where it's like, and this is what's happening now. For her to just be on the road and hearing the voiceover like, yeah. well, wait, you haven't heard from her? Like that stuff works because you're getting more backstory and more tension without having to cut in your actual current action. I love it. And like you could even imply like it is sort of telling the story of what's happening elsewhere, but you could even imply that it's her own like interpretation. That's how I actually saw it. I didn't think it was things that were actually happening. I think it was her paranoia of everything going on, especially because I think one of the first voices she hears is Sam talking to her. And that wouldn't make sense because she's not with Sam right now. So I think she's just thinking about what's going to happen once she sees Sam. So that's how I interpreted it. I didn't think it was actually happening, but her paranoia or just any fantasies she was having. Right. That makes sense. And and it fits into the greater uh, plot of the film that, you know, Norman is hearing voices. I mean, that that's the film. Norman has had a, a psychotic break and he's hearing the voice. I know we haven't gotten to this point yet. Spoilers, I guess, but, uh, He's hearing the voice of his mother, but um, I love that as an audience, you could either truly be hearing sort of what's going on in the film or really the character's own hangups and interpretations of what they think their situation is. It's powerful. And I think that's more powerful than it's a cloudy, stormy shot completely unrelated to what you're looking at at the moment. Like, I just felt like those moments didn't do anything for me and they they distracted and took away because I have no idea. And it seems like you have no idea. Why is this happening? It was really bizarre, too, because you had been so true to the original. And then to just throw these weird cuts in out of nowhere without any explanation take you out of it. It just left you there questioning it. And it didn't give the scenes more impact to me. I don't I if that was the effect. I don't know what the effect was, but I didn't feel it. All I felt was confusion after seeing those weird cuts. It's like if they had done it more and sort of sporadically, I think I would have been more okay with it. But just for, like, the murder scenes, there's really not enough of those scenes in either film for you to have this, like, weird, 
I guess jump cut, but I don't know what, honestly, I don't know what it was. So hard for me to describe. Maybe if it had been something with, I don't know, because like Norman's like sexually frustrated that he can't be with any women because mother will be jealous. So maybe if it had something to do with that, but the images, I didn't understand the storm, the goat. Maybe I could see the symbolism of the storm is here or something, but like, I didn't, the goat, right, the <laughs> what goat. are you doing? <laughs> I know you just, uh, and we kind of gloss over it earlier, but uh, you mentioned sexual frustration. Sometimes less is more. <laughs> oh, I know where you're going with this. In a film, sometimes less is more. And I think Norman works better for me in the first film because, all right, even if he does have these strange sexual desires that, um, you know, are um, implied and kind of talked about in the, the final scene, I don't necessarily need to know exactly the extent to his obsession with this woman. Like the peephole scene for the shower and he's, he's looking and Vince Vaughn is obviously masturbating. <laughs> his Norman Bates is obviously masturbating. It's like, okay, like you said before, I can't get behind this character in any sense because he, he's just, a, he's a creep and like, it takes his his madness beyond just like, all right, I've, I've got this messed up relationship with my mother that I never truly resolved to like, I am truly like a sexual deviant. Whereas like the Norman Bates and the other one, he's he's repressed in the original film and he doesn't manifest that desire well because his mother is like basically blocking him from ever having a meaningful relationship with another woman. And Vince Vaughn like clearly doesn't necessarily have quite that same disconnect because he's able to independently like pleasure himself while a woman so like even the rationale for like how his psychosis works is actually it's flawed in this particular instance it's a scene that doesn't need to happen it definitely doesn't need to happen and yeah going back to it i think you're supposed to be on norman's side by seeing him masturbate through the people he's a creep you're not going to be on his side no matter what you could care less if he gets away with the murders because right. this guy he ain't right and uh i don't know why you did that right, right. you should have just made him charming and you didn't have to have him masturbating yeah. why did you go with this route it's such a weird direction in the first film there's this arrested development he's not a fully formed human you know that that's his big problem in this new film, I mean, I guess he's not, but then he's, he's also at times capable of like what we're seeing. It, it's better if you imply that stuff than actually showing us because, like I mentioned, his deviancy is now just way beyond the pale for your average audience. Whereas like before, okay, he's looking through the peephole, but maybe it's because he doesn't see women that often. You know, he, he's got this fascination, almost like a childlike fascination because he ultimately is a boy that never grew up. I'm creeped out by it. Like when you see the people, it's like, oh, it elevates the film. It's like, whoa, this dude has more going on than it seems. But it's not necessarily at this point, you're not really thinking he's going to murder somebody. Um, whereas like just adding that element of Vince Vaughn doing that <laughs> actually puts him in the category of like, oh, this dude might be capable of uh, something like dark yeah. and messed up. It doesn't help. Yeah, because, like, okay, looking through the people, creepy, but you can come back. You can get redeemed for that, right? But masturbating to the same people? No, I don't think you can get the audience back with that. So, yeah, definitely hurt the film. Not a good idea to put in the masturbation scene. I don't know. That, that actually, like, I could see from that moment in the film, like, it was already, like, kind of touch and go for me at points. But, like, that moment, that kind of just, like, nosedive. I was like, why, why did they even go there, man? Like. And I'm trying to give Gus Van Zandt's, like, portrayal some excuses, you know? It's like, okay, like, he's trying to modernize. He's trying to show you how dangerous this guy is. But, like, I think he completely misses the mark. 
Yeah, we're not supposed to think that Norman's dangerous, but by having him masturbate, he could be. Who knows where he's willing to go with sexual devi deviancy. He could maybe potentially rape her, you know? Who right. knows what he can do? It's just, no. it's, it's creepy to have him masturbating there. And they're not supposed to be against Norman at this point. Yeah. Now, here's um, a scene, you know, when he first meets Marion and he hands her the keys and he's like reaching for a different room. And then he ultimately gives her the, uh, the first room where we now know there's a people. Like, to me, that actually could show that this character is like conflicted with these like feelings. That maybe he's trying to be like a good person or maybe like because we know later on in the film that he's had trouble with this in the past. And he's uh, he's gone this far as far as like um, murder and having this issue with other young women in his past. It's like, is that a moment where he's like trying to take a maybe another pathway and he ultimately decides on, no, I want to like see this through? In the original, you could kind of make that argument. I don't know if that's what the director is trying to say, but like I kind of took that as like maybe he's conflicted about how he wants this interaction to go down because he likes Marion. In the other film, it's just like, okay, yeah, he just wants to like jerk off on his weird people. Like, I'm so, like, I'm sorry, just not good. I guess we, I guess we should probably move on past that. Yeah, like, <laughs> we can move. We know how we both feel about the inclusion of that particular scene. Which is so dumb because it is exactly the same scene, but you added this unnecessary element in it, like... It makes him unredeemable. You can't redeem after that, no. <laughs> completely unredeemable. Um, but I guess we sort of left off at uh, Arbogast's death. That's kind of how we got into that whole sequence that we were just talking about because of the art, excuse me, the artsy cuts in the, the movie. So Arbogast dies, and Julianne Moore's character realizes that he's not coming back. It happens in both films, but like you mentioned, it's more impactful in the remake for Julianne Moore to say, all right, he said an hour and a half, it's been longer. And then she sort of kind of leads the charge for Sam and herself to go look for Arbogast and Marion at the Bates Motel. Do you get like a different vibe from Viggo Mortensen and Julianne Moore's like connection in the film? In the remake, the line slightly changes. So instead of like sending the sister to uh, a movie, Vigo kind of says like, I'd like to meet your sister. Or, like kind of like implying like maybe like some weird like threesome action, I think. I don't know. It was... Could have been implying that or just maybe implying that he wants to be in her life more. Hard to say. I don't want to throw too much in there. But like, um, do you get a vibe that there's more of a connection between those two in the remake? Or am I kind of fishing there? I didn't really get that sense. Okay. I think I actually got less of that sense because Julianne Moore's character seems more independent. Mm -hmm. I think the Lila in the original really needed Sam to help her find her sister. It just seemed that Julianne Moore like was more on top of her shit. Didn't really need this guy, but you know brought him along too because he cared for the sister. But I see less uh, Julianne Moore's character hooking up with Sam than I did um, the original. Yeah. Fair enough. Because I actually think, um, like I said, I'm jumping around and like I'm reading a lot into some of the imagery. But um, when they're walking in the remake to the room, like they just got keys from Norman. They're like they've checked in as a uh, as a married couple. When they're walking to the room, there's I think there's like a kind of like a moment where she kind of like swats away Vigo's hand, you know, as they're like to the room. So there, there's these little subtle things that you got to kind of look out for because I'm looking for meaning in moments that may or may not be there because the films are so similar. I just wanted to kind of get your take on that because I'm uh, I'm fishing. <laughs> Well, he might be more into her in the remake, but I don't get a sense that she's into him okay. so much. 
I think, yeah, maybe you could see that. Yeah, maybe he did want a three-way, and now that he's with the sister, he's finding the sister attractive, so hey, maybe, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I could yeah. see the cowboy guy kind of doing that, definitely. Okay. Like you said, I don't think she's into him at all. And she seems to be like just, in a sense, matter of fact, and like about her business. Like she has the singular goal of finding out what happened to her sister in this film. And it feels to me the way Julianne Moore has like played this character, that her connection with her sister is much stronger than Viggo Mortensen's. Because it feels more like they're dating on the cusp of getting married in the remake than in the original. Again, I could be interpreting that wrong, but that was sort of my take that Julianne Moore is the stronger connection to Marion in the remake. Okay, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> I don't really have much to add to that, but yeah, I, I could see Eureka. I really care about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's jump around here a little bit. So this is almost a shot-for-shot shot remake, but there was some stuff kind of cut from the remake. First thing I noticed that was gone was the meeting with the sheriff at the church. Okay. Before they go to the Bates Motel together. So in the original, Lila and Sam go meet up with the sheriff and his wife after they go to church. Because they want to tag along with the sheriff to go to the Bates Motel, but he says that he already went. But in the remake, you don't have that scene at all. So, what do you think about the decision to cut that scene? I think the director is showing that the immediacy of their problem in this particular case is like, okay, this guy is currently missing. So I think they're they're trying to move a little bit faster here, I guess was my take, that you didn't necessarily have as much time in between the death and the other action. Maybe that's why they cut that. But they still waited the next day. They didn't go that night. That's fair. I guess the church scene really... I guess it doesn't really add much, you know, like we still kind of have the same storyline that, you know, Norman's mother's dead and that the sheriff checked it out. I mean, there's still some scenes in the remake that don't make sense, like the whole car swapping thing. You don't need that in the remake, right. but he kept it, but he didn't keep this scene. Yeah. Hard to say, like his um, his rationale there. Unfortunately, I don't quite know what the reason for the cut was. As I mentioned a little bit, a little bit earlier, I'm I'm actually kind of fishing here. Like I I don't know what he's going for. I'm trying to make my own sort of interpretations, and it's like okay, maybe they're just trying to cut the fat to make it feel like we're getting to that concluding action a little bit quicker because you're still getting a lot of the same information without the actual need for him to be meeting in front of a church. Maybe you have an interpretation. I have no idea either. It doesn't make sense. You're making a shot for shot remake. You decide not to shoot something, or maybe it was shot and cut. But I don't know why you wouldn't keep that in. You're saying trimming the fat, but I feel like there's a lot of other scenes they could have cut too. Like we said, the car scene. There's not really much going on in the scene, so I don't mind that it's not there. But if you're making a shot-for-shot remake, I don't understand your rationale for cutting it. Fair enough, yeah. I mean, yeah, what's the difference? What's the difference between... Exactly. It's only like a couple minutes of dialogue, so I don't know why it had to be cut. (laughs) Was it like, my vision's not going to be complete unless I don't have this church scene? It didn't make sense to me, since you're keeping everything else in. In a sense, it almost feels like, eh, why even shoot that part? Like, let's save a couple dollars <laughs> and, like, not not cast a full, like, church scene or, like, book the, the space to film that. Like, I don't know. It, it's one of those moments where, because you've decided to go this route of, like, full-on shot-for-shot remake, when things go missing, it's glaring. And you're right. I'm trying to find a rationale for it, but as we both mentioned, there doesn't seem to be much of one. wouldn't make much of a difference if it was there. Yeah, so just shoot it. Just do it. If you're doing a shot-for-shot remake, I don't know. So that was one scene that was cut. 
And the other is not fully cut like the church scene, but the, at the end, when they're in the courthouse and the psychiatrist is explaining uh, Norman Bates, there's some information given that was cut there. I don't know if you even noticed it or... Oh, I noticed. Okay. I hate it. <laughs> Personally, I, I think that it's kind of cheesy in the original. I'll give him that. His full-on explanation of what happened is, is one, a very long scene. The psychiatrist going, you know, talking about the psychotic break that he has, that he's has these two personas, that he's half Norman, he's half mother. He's making this explanation, and the one guy um, says it. Oh, he's like, because he's dressing up as a woman, as mother, to kill these people, one of the cops dismisses it as he's like a transvestite. And he's like, no, no, no. He gives the definition of what Norman's doing versus that. I like that scene as kind of ridiculous as it is for like people just be sitting there for like 10 minutes of a guy being like, well, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and it's also like, what are you the world's best psychiatrist? How did you gleam all this information in this kind of short amount of time in the remake? It's like, he's talking, but then there's sound in the background and it's just like, they cut parts of it and they keep parts of it. If you don't know the source material, you could actually kind of miss what the point was that like he's had this break. Like they're talking about it, but they're doing it in such a like weird way that you could quite literally miss the fact of like why Norman Bates has taken on a persona of his mother. And I think it's just a lot clearer in the original film, although it's probably a little bit over the top, which is why they wanted to modernize it. The remake psychiatrist is played by Robert Forster. I like him as an actor, so it was nice to see him there. I like the idea that it was cut. Sure. I think it is over explaining the original because maybe people had never seen anything like that. And so he really had to kind of dumb it down for audiences back then. That's fair. That this is what I mean by split personality and he can be two people. They didn't trust the audience to understand that. And that makes sense that you would cut it in the remake because we've seen stuff like this all the time and especially 30 years of movies. So right. I get it why he did it. But again, you're making an exact copy why are you doing these you're making these little changes if you're trying to make it exactly the same just make it exactly the same right i agree you're confusing me when you're changing things and it's taking me out of the movie every time you do that are you making a copy or are you making your own version i I keep going back and forth between it do you want me to be confused because that's what i am (laughs) i think that there's space here because you have these like murder scenes like the way the shower scene is shot in this remake is patently ridiculous it's goofy, and I, I love that they did it because it's so wild and, like, clearly, like, they're trying to, like, play off of how ridiculous it was shot in the original by, like, necessity in that film and in this film as an homage and as, like, it felt like camp. Here's a campy slasher scene in a film. So it's like, if you're going to have these moments that are an allusion to the first movie and you're recognizing that there are parts of this that are preposterous but, you know, iconic, you could have so much fun with that psychiatrist scene and you just kind of like, and you guys pretty much get what's going on. And we're, we're kind of like cutting and moving on. I'm like, dude, like go with it. Like you've already taken this ride. Like you said, finish it. You know, you <laughs> right. got lazy at the end. <laughs> and honestly, for me, the, the very, very last of it, when Vince Vaughn has become mother, I felt that in the original film, that clear division was was there in, in better, you know, like the fly on the hand. It felt more like separate because the psychiatrist and the mother voices almost kind of like bleed together in this remake. And I'm like, oh, they're doing the psychotic break thing. They're doing the split personality. But it took me a second to realize that's what they were doing because it wasn't as like divided in this new film. I get what you're doing, guys, but like, 
I don't have to like it. <laughs> yeah, going back to the psychiatrist explaining everything. Yeah, I agree with you. He should have just went. Just go for it. <laughs> you got the camp. You got enough ridiculous looking scenes. You got the ridiculous shower murder. Arbogast's murder still looks ridiculous. Why not have the ending ridiculous too, where the psychiatrist just talks for ten minutes? Just go for it, man. Right. If like if we're all in on a joke, that would be so funny. You know, because like you've got like you mentioned before, Arbogast in this crazy getup. Like, you should bring the guy out full lab coat, full stethoscope for no reason, just, like, <laughs> to a dumbfounded, like, audience of uh, sheriffs and lead characters. You should just have, like, them, like, huh, psychotic break. Okay. Like, just go with it, man. At the same time, though, we do need to keep in mind that in a modern film, they are testing this stuff. So maybe they played that to an audience, and it just, like, didn't play. So they, they made a cut. I'm surprised they didn't cut more than man. That's true. That's true. Yeah, ultimately, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I, I like that they kind of went with like some of the music and sounds there, but at the same time, it distracted from the dialogue to me. And that, that was ultimately the biggest sin for me in that scene. It was just like, all right, like I know the source material and I know how like explaining and ridiculous this gets. And you're just kind of like playing over this because I wanted to really hear his take on that dialogue. And it's kind of being like um, stepped on a little bit. You kind of mentioned the music there. Let's actually discuss the music. So we have the same soundtrack pretty much for both films, right? Just like the dialogue's the same. We have now we have the same music. What do you think about that? I love it. The music, it's like the third lead in the film. You know, there's Norman Bates, there's uh, Janet Lee, and then you've got the music. The music drives action. It creates suspense. It is one of the best examples of a movie taking music and sounds and building suspense. It's not overdone. To me, it's a perfect score. That's why I think you see it used so much in other mediums. Like you mentioned The Simpsons and like, you know, other uh, shows and movies like that is so recognizable that you can throw that music on top of almost anything and people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, here comes, like, the killer or the slasher. It's a defining music, so I love it. And I think it was a smart choice in the remake. Let's just do it again. <laughs> Let's not piss everybody off. Let's just do it again. It worked. It's immediately recognizable. Stick with it. But I know I know you're, you're the music guy, so I'll let you... Uh... I mean, it is definitely, like you said, it's an iconic soundtrack. been used well beyond Psycho and parodied more times than I can probably count. But I don't know, it didn't work for me in the remake. I know you liked it, but it took me out of it. It worked in 1960. This type of movie had never really been done before. This is sort of considered the first slasher movie. So having that music, which is pretty intense music, it's right on the nose there when you have the, the murders going on. Putting it in 1998, it lacks subtlety. And having it in 1998, it's too obvious. And it didn't work for me, but... If you were going to that route where it's like, yeah, we're, you know, we know it's absurd, so we're going to keep the same soundtrack because while it worked in 1960, it's sort of a parody now. So if they're going for that camp vibe, if I, if I take it from that point of view, then it works really well. But if they're trying to modernize this for audiences, then it definitely didn't work. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with you on that. I think that the biggest problem when you're talking about a shot for shot remake is you are you're a prisoner to the source material. When you're shooting for a film this masterful, this iconic, you're stuck, you know? Like, if you wanted to play different music, you can't. And it doesn't, like you said, there's a lot of moments where it doesn't work. 
nearly as well. I mean, like not even in the same atmosphere as in the first film. But unfortunately, the reason I'm going to stick with I like the choice is because they have to. If you don't do it, you're dead in the water anyway. So even though you're kind of shoehorning it in and it doesn't really fit these new scenes, you got to go with it. So I'm glad they didn't try to like make an original score for the remake because that wouldn't have played well at all. Yeah, I get what you're saying. What you're saying that um, they really had no choice because if you do put a score in, there's no way it's going to be as iconic as the Psycho score. And then you are going to have people that are going, "Why didn't they use the original score? It was such an iconic score." So I think no matter what, you have to stick with it. You can't. Maybe they could have done something a little different sometimes, but you definitely need the iconic, like the re, re, re. You definitely need that for the shower scene. I kind of wish they did do something new, but maybe that's just me. I'm with you. I'm with you. And um, I think the the biggest problem this remake has is it, it doesn't have its own identity. And the moments where it tries to do it, you know, I think we uh, we found that some of the choices that were made take away from the source. So it's this wild catch 22 and you know maybe done in a different way that type of stuff could have played well but the way that they chose to film this i don't know like what do you do or you're gonna play new songs over the same scenes like how's that work you know like i i would like to see some different interpretations too because i think there are moments where the actors are giving you a different take on these old characters they're few and far between but when they do happen there's some interesting things that happen as we mentioned the julianne moore character is uh She's different. She's a different character in this uh, film with the same dialogue. And there's moments to do that throughout the film that are that are missed. All right. Um, where do you want to go from here? I guess I covered everything, really. Oh, I guess one little thing I want to talk about. The green screen in the remake. There's some obvious outside shots where um, there's a green screen behind the people. I know this is 1998, so green screen technology is not quite there. Um, and it's definitely obvious when they're walking in front of a green screen or even driving in front of a green screen so even though it's 1998 and it's supposed to look better at some parts it just looks worse than the original and you know this is why alfred hitchcock has just stood the test of times given all the film limitations that he had the man was an innovator he, he did things that were never seen before like we said that intro shot to just zoom right into the scene beautiful some of the things that he's doing with uh, the rear view mirrors and cars and showing action in that way, the way he shoots through the uh, the peephole, the, the way he tries to show murder scenes without really having the ability to give you a real murder. It's like, yes, there are moments that are clearly dated and don't hold up, but he actually does enough uh, with the camera. The guy was a master to keep even audiences like ourselves compelled. Like you say, you rewound a moment because you're like, oh, damn, look at look at that. Like, that is the type of stuff that Alfred Hitchcock was uh, was capable of. Unfortunately, you know, when you're talking about green screen technology uh, at the time, because it doesn't hold up 1998 versus what we're a little bit more used to today, there's no favors, you know? Sometimes being able to actually shoot the scene is where it's at. And I know modern filming, they got these studio lots. You don't have as much space and you're not able to get as, the same types of access as you did in the past. But uh, fortunately, it takes you out, clearly. Like, here we are talking about it. And that's, again, one of the biggest sins in film is when your audience is like, why'd they do that? That's a, <laughs> that's a bad sign. So, I mean, so we, we've gone over the directors. We've gone over music, characters. I mean, because the films are so interchangeable, I guess, uh, in terms of scenes and dialogue, there's not... I don't think there's much more we could dive into... Um, 
in terms of differences, I guess I guess it may be time to ultimately say whether or not we uh, we thought they should have done this remake. What's uh, what's your take, Dan? What's my take? I don't even know where to begin with this. It's it's weird because it's a shot for shot remake, and I think the big problem is what worked in 1960 is not going to work in 1998. You're not going to catch lightning in a bottle twice. I was okay with some things, but overall, I was not okay with a lot of this. The portrayal of Norman Bates, uh, the way the music just took me out of it, and then putting in weird stuff that I didn't. I don't understand the motivation to make this a shot-for-shot remake because you didn't do exactly everything the same. You did change some things. You took some things out. You added some extra things. So you either do a shot-for-shot exact remake or you completely change it and shoot your own vision of it. I don't understand what he was going for. They say it's supposed to be an experiment of like seeing what a shot for shot remake would look like. Well, that experiment's a failure because this there's no reason this movie had to be made at all. I don't know what they were thinking when they did this. Um, it just doesn't make any sense to me. If you want to see it as an experiment of should they just make shot for shot remakes uh, for movies that are almost 40 years apart, then by all means do it. But the result of that experiment is a failure is it does not work what worked 40 years ago or 38 to be exact does not work today so for me this definitely doesn't work they didn't need to make this movie at all stick with the original if you want a good remake of psycho i just go with bates motel i started watching that because of this review that we're doing and it's sort of a modern prequel remake if that kind of makes sense i only watched a couple episodes but i like what they're doing with it they're taking the characters, they're modernizing it, they're do- redoing some of the stuff too. So um, it, that's good. <laughs> this, no, <laughs> this is a this is going to be a pass. Yeah, I, I think that we we've come across this theme once again. Where I, I hate to have to define film, but film is capturing a moment in time, and this particular dialogue, this particular subject, fit the time. You know, in the 1960s. A woman in this type of relationship confronted with this type of problem being on the run and having the result that we see with uh, the Norman Bates character, it fits, you know, that timeline. It's it's compelling and interesting in that context. In the context of 1998, you know, not so much. You know, there's a lot of different ways they could have gone. This, as you mentioned, you know, the Bates Motel where they, they modernize and they change things. There's a lot of different ways they could have told this story in a more modern way, as opposed to just like, let's shoehorn 1960s dialogue into a 1998 plot. And, you know, now we have we have the advantage of hindsight, but like when you hear Vince Vaughn psycho remake, I don't know what planet or what day that sounds like a good idea to anybody. There's some fun things that happen in the movie. There's some things that I, I enjoyed, but it's too few and far in between to say that this should have happened. Like there was no reason for me uh, or you to have watched <laughs> a particular <laughs> film because it does not bring enough to the table and the parts that are interesting are buried by some parts that are very uninteresting and some plot holes that develop when you try to take an old film and make it a new one. And I hope they don't try to do it again because now we got cell phones. So this whole thing would fall apart in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> um, I would say they did not need to make this remake. Yeah, and like I had high hopes for it because like I know it's weird casting Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates, but like I, I keep saying, you're supposed to uh, be on Norman's side, right? You're supposed to root for him, and I think you could have made Vince Vaughn, you know, just be Vince Vaughn, charming, 
you can win the audience over as Norman Bates if it's Vince Vaughn because if you can make him a likable character and they just made him so creepy. Yeah. It's almost like they didn't understand the source material. Right, right. It's like it's okay that he's creepy and like that's part of it, but it's not just that he's creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and and I would say Vince is, you know, when it comes down to it, none of the actors really struck me as they messed up. I think Vince Vaughn does a fine enough job. He's he's his own take on that character the same way Julianne Moore, her own take on the sister. Everybody's doing their own thing and more or less, I don't have a problem with any of the actors. The problem is itself is that they are taking something that does not make sense in the timeline that is being filmed. So no matter how good of a job they do, they're always going to fall short. Like you mentioned, the director really should have known that it was more than just being creepy that made Norman Bates a, a compelling character. Yeah, Vince Vaughn was creepy, but not enough. I think that's all I got to say. Oh, actually, do you want some random facts? Yeah, let's do some random facts. All right. So we might not have liked this movie, but <laughs> I found this on Wikipedia and IMDb. One director actually preferred Van Zandt's remake to the original film, saying the remake was more real. And that director was Quentin Tarantino. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that came out of like, what? Really? Tarantino. <laughs> he said that. I feel, I know, you know, Tarantino is a big film buff. He's like super into the history of, uh, of all things film. I could see him doing a similar project. Some of this movie has like elements of what I would kind of expect Tarantino to do with this type of material. So I could see him liking it, but he's, he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Quentin. It is more, I guess, quote unquote, real, but so what? Yeah, it doesn't mean it's better. <laughs> right. Real is not better in this particular scenario. When asked why he did a shot-for-shot shot remake of Psycho, Gus Van Sant replied, so no one else would have to. That has to be one of the worst excuses for doing anything ever. <laughs> well, he, he's not the hero that Gotham needs. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm confused. Okay. Here's more of a fun one. Okay. So Alfred Hitchcock... He always he's famous for always doing a cameo in one of his films. I don't know if you saw him. He was actually outside the real estate office. He was wearing a cowboy hat. Interesting. Yeah, he was there. And Gus Van Sant also cameos in the same shot, but he's not wearing the cowboy hat. There is a guy in a cowboy hat, and he's yelling at Gus Van Sant. So that's supposed to be Hitchcock scolding Van Sant. That's funny. That is funny because that's kind of the sentiment that would probably happen if Hitchcock was alive to see him. It's like, what are you doing to my film? What are you doing? Yeah, it's like he didn't push it far enough to justify doing it. Again, why, you know? I guess so no one else would have to, but I don't think anyone else would have. <laughs> Everybody's like, yeah, that's a good movie. Why would I do that? <laughs> I will say this. If you want to see another cool uh, Hitchcock film, I know there's plenty of them, but uh, Rope is another good suspense movie kind of in a similar vein that has a lot of subtlety underneath the uh, the dialogue. Okay. Do you want to try to figure out what we're going to do next? Yeah, let's uh, let's sign this out. I think we should go back towards um, some sort of action, uh, maybe like the Italian job. Cool. The Italian job it is. Cool. Well, I'm Reggie Parker. You can find me at RP Comedy on Instagram and Twitter or rpcomedy.com. And I'm Dan Bulick. I guess you could just find me on Twitter at Console Wars Guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, definitely let us know if we missed anything. That concludes this episode of Retro vs. Remake. <laughs>